0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. My guest today is one of the greatest athletes of all time. <laughs> In Montreal in 1976, Edwin Moses won his first Olympic gold and set a new world record for the 400-meter hurdles. It wouldn't be his last. From the summers of 1977 to 1987, Moses won every single 400-meter hurdles race he contested. 122 straight victories. He's held the world record on four separate occasions, but I first encountered the man dubbed the Nureyev of hurdling as a teenage autograph hunter myself in the mid 1980s, sidling up to watch his six foot, two inch frame warming up for yet another stroll to glory at Gateshead Stadium in the northeast of England. Since hanging up his spikes, Moses has turned his attention to raising the game of the entire sporting world. He's been chairman of the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, and for the last 20 years, he's been chair of the Laureus Sport for Good Foundation. So this week, we're asking someone whose performance changed the definition of sporting success, how do you become a world-beating athlete? Edwin Moses, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. This week, we should have seen the start of the Olympic Games. Instead, we're talking from both of our homes, of course, as it's been postponed. Can you imagine how that feels for an athlete like yourself who puts so much into these key moments?
0: I don't have to imagine. I know exactly how it feels from uh, what happened in uh, the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow when the United States uh, Olympic team and several other Olympic teams from around the world didn't get to compete. The only difference this time is that, as we know right now, it's only been postponed. So... The athletes are hoping that they may be able to compete. Some of the reports I've been reading don't look as good as I would think would for a competition to occur. So everything's really up in the air. But it was quite painful to not be able to compete. If I was a woman, it would be the equivalent of losing a child and losing an opportunity to really have something that you've been working for for a long time and really want it.
1: I see that a member of the Japanese Olympic Organising Committee has said actually just before we started recording that unless coronavirus conditions improved a lot, the Tokyo Games already postponed wouldn't be able to go ahead in 2021. And if they don't, what, what do you think the impact will be on the sporting world?
0: Well, the world is not going to end. It didn't end when United States athletes didn't go to the Olympic Games. I think that all bets are off. And I've said that from the very, very beginning, that as we get down the road, you'll be able to determine the likelihood of uh, having the Olympic Games. It's going to be very difficult to accumulate or expect 28,000 journalists and hundreds of thousands of people, not to mention the proximity of the athletes in the uh, olympic village to bring all these people in from various parts of the world some of which may still remain as hotspots or develop into hot spots i think that it's it's going to be touch and go and i've said that from the beginning i don't see even if things were perfect in tokyo and or china in 2022 i just don't see how you can safely bring that many people together from various mm. points in the world under the conditions that we have now, not knowing or not knowing whether someone who can be mm-hmm. transmissible or not, it's, it's, it's going to be difficult, but the world won't end. It didn't end in 1980. And at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of other issues on earth uh, that are probably more important than the Olympic Games.
1: And how did you prepare physically and mentally for Olympic races? Take us back, if you could, to the first time. So that's Montreal in 1976 for many missing Olympics of the the 1980s, because, of course, there was a, a protest against the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan. There you are on the starting line, an unknown, I think, at the time headed for gold. What took you there?
0: My story is very unusual in that I went to college on an academic scholarship to study physics and engineering. The small college that I went to, Morehouse College, which is the alma mater of Dr. Martin Luther King, I went to school with his son and some of my classmates, Spike Lee and Samuel Jackson, were there at the time. We didn't have any facility, we didn't have a track, we didn't have a field, so I literally was jumping fences all of 1974, <laughs> 75, and 76, and literally went from being a total unknown in to running three good times in, in the 400 flat, the 110 hurdles and the 400 hurdles. And when the first big meet of the year that I had the opportunity to go to and qualifying for those Olympic trials almost exactly four months to the day before the Olympics. I had to pick one of those events. I, fortunately, I picked the right event, the toughest one, the 400 hurdles. Uh, four months later, I was Olympic champion and I uh, had a lot of obstacles, no pun intending, a lot of obstacles, political obstacles, and a lot of things in my way to even get there. The school ran out of money. I had to go to the president and ask him for $3,000 to send me and my coach to the Olympic trials. And he asked me, uh, do you really think you can win a gold medal? I told him, Dr. Gloucester, if we get this money, we're going to go run these track meets in sequential order, break the American record along the way, go to the Olympic Games and break the world record. And he signed a check. So when I got there, I felt like I was a gladiator uh, with a mission because I should have never been there in the first place. And I knew that I was prepared. I knew that I was going to run a world record. And I did.
1: And what had taken you to the sport in the first place? I mean, looking at you, remembering seeing you run back in the the late 1980s and being a very amateur, most amateur of county athletes, just looking at your physique, it always looks like you're, you're kind of born to go over those hurdles and to flow over them as if they weren't in the way at all. I'm sure it doesn't feel like that when you're doing it at such a high level. But did, did it come from your parents or how were you in inspired to run?
0: You describe the hurdles exactly how I felt them. You go over them. It's really not there. It's an exaggerated step. But I was not supposed to be there Four years before, when I was in high school, I was five feet seven and 125 pounds. I went to school earlier than most of the other kids, so I was the young one, and I was always one of the smallest kids uh, on the team and in my class. So I grew when I went to college. So I went from five, seven to almost six, two and from 125 pounds up to about 165 in uh, three and a half years. So I didn't look this way all the time. I don't know if you know of a character called Steve Urkel. That was me in high school. Everyone, even to this day, my classmates are still surprised. They say, what happened to you? You grew and we knew you were good in track. I was decent in high school, but no one would have ever expected that little kid to go to the Olympic games four years later.
1: We're looking back, a lot of people looking at race and thinking about their lifetimes and their own experiences, whether they're people of colour or whether they're they're white. And I look back and I think of it as being this time when it was just the most extraordinary array of black athletes that that I was following, yourself included. Clancy Edwards, you would know, who would sort of compete around the same time alongside you. And that went on and and indeed still goes on to this day. So the impression that you got was this was a really great way which people of colour could break through. But what did it feel like on the inside? And did it feel that that easy to break through or did you feel that you had hurdles of a different kind in your way
0: I was accustomed to, you know, being an academic and studying physics and engineering, and that really just comes to brain power. So I didn't really experience, you know, any kind of discrimination in that. Either you get the answer, you work the problem, or you don't. Fortunately, in sports, it's the same thing. Track and field is one of those sports where, as I always say, you know, there's only three things that matter in track and field, time, height, and distance. It's a great equalizer. So in sports, you know, you don't really feel that. When I first started traveling in Europe, you know, being a young African-American man, and I think I was all but 21 years old at the time, for the most part, people, if you were black and young, people thought you were probably a jazz musician or in the army.
1: The complex relationship for world-class athletes between winning and losing, when you've had such an extraordinary winning streak as you then went on to do, is there a fear of losing? How do you keep motivating yourself when you're really on top of the world?
0: Well, I always lost until I started winning. That's the one thing about track and field. It's almost like going up a roller coaster. You go up and then you go down. You can be in the eighth or ninth grade and you can win races at that age group. And then when you run against 10th and 11th graders, you might not win all the time. And then you have to start all over and improve within that group. And that's what happened to me. I was always the first hill on the on the roller coaster climb. I was continually, perpetually on that first climb to the top of the first downhill for almost my whole career until 76. So losing is a part of track and field.
1: I know it's the, the motto of your Laureus Foundation that sport has the power to change the world. And if we look back from John Carlos and Tommy Smith and the famous Black Power salute in 1968 to Peter Connor uh, waving the Irish flag at the beginning of the 20th century, sports have often been used as a platform for, for protest. Why do you think sport and politics have been so intertwined? And do you see that around you in the world now?
0: I think number one, you don't get a chance to protest if you're not really, really good. And in many parts of the world, athletes make sacrifices to get where they are. Certainly in the in, in the Olympic sports, where most of the athletes in the world aren't compensated, they don't get a lot of money unless you're in the very elite. And only in the last 20 years have a lot of countries even started to to give their athletes monies for training, but the politics around, for example, the Olympic movement, the international movement is what really gives the athletes a basis to protest. The athletes really wanna go and compete and do nothing else. It would be an ideal world if athletes could just go to the Olympic games and perhaps they were compensated for being at an Olympic games and be happy and just compete. But unfortunately, there's a lot of issues in the world.
1: But that then does raise the question, doesn't it, when it is, right or called for or justified to use protest in sport. Because I used to have this argument for a very long time that my, my father, who also helped you know, to train me, was very involved with athletics and with the local stadium. And he was very much of a view that politic. the more politics was threaded through sport, the more it sort of undermined the sort of purity of the, the, the sport and that you should really leave your views behind you in other than very extreme circumstances. What what do you think? Can you ever, or should you ever take politics out of sport?
0: Yeah, we go through that argument over here many times, depending on what side of the spectrum you're on. In many cases, you have people that say athletes ought to shut up, but only if I don't agree with you. If I agree with you, then it's okay. And so that's one of the big issues with it. But sports people are like any other profession. We have the right to think about and talk about and express what we feel. Same thing as a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher, everyone in most parts of the world, not all parts of the world, but we do have that, that opportunity to express our rights. And I, I think that there's no way that at an Olympic Games you're gonna contain athletes, especially in the environment that we're all in right now where there's you know, uh, protests on racism, for example, all over the world. There's pro- people that wanna protest about having clean water, about disease and what's gonna happen to disease. Uh, about refugees in certain parts of the world, and war, and, 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 and landmines, and people uh, being gassed, gassed in their in their countries. So there's there's plenty of reasons that athletes need to be concerned.
1: Yeah, I was going to give a, a flavour of that with this sort of broadening out of gestures of solidarity. If we look, for instance, at American basketball, the women's NBA will have Black Lives Matter on their training jerseys. The NBA will have the motto stenciled onto the court for the new season. I'd just like to ask you how much power you feel that these gestures have. I get the impression that you largely support protest movement. You feel that people should protest if they wish to. But how powerful are they in actually bringing about change as opposed to being totemic in some way?
0: I was looking at Instagram one evening and there was a 14 year old girl that was at one of the protests and she had a sign that said, um, George Floyd is not a wake up call. You've just had your alarm on snooze for, for, for too long. And I think that's true. So over here, people have really been inundated and had a chance to see and experience and see visually and understand, you know, the plight of what's been going on. One of my Jewish high school friends, we're still friends today, she said, not being a racist is not enough. You have to be anti-racist. And so there's a whole segment of our population that's been exposed to the disparities and, and from medical and healthcare and all these things that have been happening, not to mention the police shootings, but I have, I've become much more aware. I've been hearing it and, and experienced it as long as I've been alive, but there's just a lot of people that have been and hearing it, it's a news story. No one's ever thought about it. So people have begun to think about it, not only in the United States, but all over America and be educated about the plight of African-American people in the history of slavery, the history mm. of the Confederacy, and be able to see with their own eyes what police brutality looks like and see the statistics and see the uh, the disparity.
1: What what is, I mean, that actually makes me, sorry to jump in there, but it just makes me wonder what you think has changed in your lifetime. So as you said, you've grown up, you went to the mainly black college, you spent your time in athletics, so obviously mixed worlds there racially, but at the time, a lot was really not changing in in society. We we think that society has changed. And yet a, a lot of your Colleagues, I think others who've, who've made protest gestures have said that it didn't change. I think Tommy Smith and John Carlos, actually, among this number, that it didn't change as much as they thought. What's your personal experience been?
0: Well, it definitely has changed. It's changed in waves. There's been significant changes like the Voting Rights Act, Brown versus the Board of Education, all those things made significant changes. But in the last 20 years, even in the last three to five years, a lot of that has been rolled back by the Supreme Court. If I was 20 years old and growing up today, I'd have three, four, 500% more opportunities than I would have when I was growing up. I could work for an investment bank. I could be a CEO for a university a top-level accountant, I could be a CEO of a major Fortune 500 company. Those things weren't possible 40 years ago. So there's been a significant change in opportunity that is there to be had. But at the core of it, the insensitivity to what's happening to Native Americans and African-American people and even poor white people. You know, they've been beat up for a long time, too, and no one has really talked about that until recently. It's not always about race. In many cases, it's about class. The racial issue has been used to divide Americans in many ways that are very insidious and subliminally applied.
1: A different angle now on what you've been doing, and that's the anti-doping agency, which you you have moved on to to chair. You made your views clear quite early on and really from about 1988 onwards that you felt athletics was moved in the, the wrong direction and needed a corrective. Since there, we've been to and fro with various doping scandals. As the tests have become more sophisticated, it might seem so have the drugs. What are your pressing concerns now and who is winning this cat and mouse
0: The big concern right now is the institutional state-sponsored doping that's been going on for a long time. I chose to fight for a level playing field for everyone many, many, many years ago, but it's an ongoing problem we're going to have to solve. The problem that we are needing to deal with as quickly as possible that has been going on for the last six years is the problem of Russia. I think heads should roll and that leadership starts at the top. Back in 1990-91, I was the head of an organization put together by the U.S. Olympic Committee and working with the Russian Olympic Committee. We actually took the first computers over to the laboratory in Moscow in 1990-91. They had to be cleared by the State Department. But back then, I learned everything that I needed to know about the philosophy of how the Russians traditionally have looked at doping versus anti-doping. And unfortunately, it's one and the same. The anti-doping over there in Russia means just don't get caught before you go to a world championships, or we want to detect you at home before you go so that you won't get caught when you leave the country. Their anti-doping programs are really designed to assist athletes to use uh, substances undetected. Very unlike uh, in the UK and in the United States. So philosophically, you have to understand that first. It's just. There's no penalties for an athlete. If you have a positive test at home before you go to a world championships team, they just tell you, oh, sit it out, we'll adjust your schedule, and next year, we'll hopefully get you back with an adjusted regime of doping.
1: And is that is that really different? You see, some people with, with long memories might say, well, obviously, this came to a head in 1988, and uh, thereafter, the great Ben Johnson uh, controversy over doping and how many people, including uh, Mr. Johnson himself, would be using drugs illegally to enhance performance so in, in some senses it does seem that there was a bad period in the west as well i mean is your argument fundamentally that america and largely the west dealt with its doping problem and the russians didn't
0: no, it's it's all over the world. In fact, when I was running, a lot of our athletes were really good pals and buddies with the Russians and East Germans, and they discussed and, and compared and talked about what substances they were using because they actually felt that, well, you're going to do it, so I'm going to do it too. At least, you know, let's take the same drugs and compete and hope that we don't get caught. I just fundamentally disagree with that philosophy, and that's one of the reasons I got in the anti-doping business anyway. I just fundamentally believe that If you have a daughter or a niece or a young brother, that they should not have to compete in Olympic sports and be forced to perhaps take drugs just to be competitive. I just fundamentally disagree with that. And I think that the Olympic ideas and all the morality and ethics of the world of sports ought to severely protect that. I guess you can say that I was one of the squeaky wheels that really pushed for clean sport for everyone.
1: And do you believe that that race is now being won?
0: I think we have the potential to win. I think we're winning in lots of countries around the world where the unabated use of some of the most powerful and common drugs can't occur anymore. When I was running, for example, there was no test for testosterone. There was no test for growth hormone. EPO was brand new. There was no test for that. So during the period in which I was running in the, in the late 70s throughout the, I would say throughout the beginning of the century, those drugs were used quite commonly
1: Something that didn't arise as a debate in your earlier days, but is now very much in the spotlight, the IOC ruled in March, it would wait till after the Tokyo Games to rule on how sports organizations would deal with the delicate question of transgender, intersex and athletes whose biology might be seen as giving them some unfair advantage. What is your view of this?
0: It's a very um, touchy subject. I've uh, got a colleague that is considered an expert and I was speaking with her about it. And uh, it's very, very complicated. I was really disappointed uh, initially in the way that Castor Semenya was treated by the International Amateur Athletic Federation. I just thought it was wrong.
1: So just to to clarify for our our list, this Castor Semenya is an athlete who's hyper androgynous and the initial ruling against her was she should adjust or, or reduce her natural testosterone to compete as a woman. Is that the way you'd understand it?
0: yeah but it, it, you know when you use words like androgynous and intersex there's a wide range of different levels of intersex and hormonal anomalies but uh, mm. the, the the case really stood on whether or not she was a biological male versus a woman with a lot of testosterone and so she fell outside mm. of that category from the research that i've seen of being just a woman with a lot of testosterone and in fact was a biological male who had lived a life as a woman and through no fault of her own, was was very, very good in track and field. So it, it, you know it, it it's a case that is quite emotional, you know, for me and everyone else because I've met her before.
1: So what would your Dr., Moses, what would your ruling have been? and which races would she have been running in? Who would you've been competing against?
0: The science says that she's a biological male, although she had been socialized as a female, I guess the question would be, and unfortunately, I don't have a daughter, but would you want your daughter to be running against generally a man who's transgender, but yet still has a biological makeup that is very, very different from most women way outside of the range? So it's it's difficult. I don't know what I would have done if I had to make a decision but there were members of the LGBTQIA community that were supporting her no matter what. And I think going down the road, the question is going to be if she was allowed to compete and if there were no obstacles, whether or not you would have a cadre of similar women who all of a sudden started dominating women's sports and biological women would not have an opportunity. So that is a really big issue.
1: It sounds to me like you think she she ought to be competing against male athletes.
0: She has a distinct advantage over female athletes. She's producing testosterone from some of the charts that I've seen that are well into what the average man produces and nowhere near the middle. And she was not the first one from what I understand. There's been others as well and in fact, they say in Brazil in the 800 meters in Rio that they were, the whole victory stand perhaps had intersex athletes.
1: You've said that you think the sport has its head in the ground or, on this issue. And I think you've reflected as you picked your way through it. It is, it is very, it's morally complex. It, it's complex in terms of the sport and indeed de- definitions. What would it mean for the sport to take its head off the ground, you know, to, to face up to it? What would that entail?
0: I think they finally got to it. I guess it was last year. They finally made a decision and decided that these athletes would have to have lower testosterone levels. Either don't compete or have medication to temper the testosterone. I think that presents a dilemma as well. But at the same time, will you feel for the person? I was really, Absolutely. really, really mm-hmm. concerned and uh, empathetic mm-hmm. towards her. But at the same time, you know, fairness for the majority of women, it has to be considered as well.
1: Let me ask you about your... Post-athletic sporting life, I gather you've been brakeman in the U.S. bobsleigh team in the 1990 World Cup. <laughs> From athletics to, to bobsleigh, I mean, did you just go out for a couple of drinks one night and someone talked you into it? Or how did that come about?
0: I was introduced to the sport by Willie Gault, who competed. And the bobsleigh federation was not happy with the level of pushers that they had. And I was asked to come out because I was, I knew how to sprint and I had power, could generate power. Hmm. And so they were simply looking for the best athletes, and I went to the camp and found out what it was about, and then went back and qualified for the team in my first year. They just got to the point; someone decided that they they needed to look at track and field athletes because we had some of the qualities that were. Yeah, um, so you,
1: you broke the you broke the silos a bit there, didn't you? A little bit of a
0: problem. There was some there was some some racial issues that that happened because of that. Some of the guys mm-hmm. traditionally who were up in Lake Placid and upstate New York were not happy to be beat out of their positions. So, you know, we went up with our heads up and I didn't know anything about the sport. I became one of the best pushers in the world because I took it seriously. And actually won won a medal at one of the, World Cups. I think my second or third race, I won a a bronze medal in the World Cup in the two-man. So it was no joke. It was serious business.
1: And whether we look at winter sports or track and field, the pandemic is obviously changing the the sporting world in in very deep ways at the moment. What impacts are you seeing and do you predict for sport in general really coming out of the pandemic if we're fortunate enough to do so? in the near future.
0: What it's done to the athletes is that many of them have been forced to train and under the conditions that we had to train under in the seventies and eighties when you couldn't go to any college or university, you couldn't get on any track that you wanted to for one reason or another. They've become very creative. I used to do a lot of my work up and down hills and in golf courses. So if I was an athlete today, except for the fact that you can't travel around the world right now, I would be on vacation right now taking it easy because there's no way you can remain in condition another year.
1: I'm interested in what your advice is. It's such a it's a difficult time in every possible way. It's a difficult time because of the pandemic. It's a difficult uh, time because of what is happening around us in in terms of protest movements and great anger about racism and how little has been done about it. So, what's your advice to young athletes, particularly young black athletes who rely on on sport perhaps for a leg up in the world or for a place in their communities, and how much you think that that is imperiled at the moment?
0: I think it's very important, and that's where our work from Laureus really comes in because we are not uh, in the business of uh, putting people uh, on a football pitch or or in a Formula One car or on a basketball court, but we are the type of organization where our only objective is to use sport for developing the mind, the body, giving people resources that they otherwise would not have and showing them um, the, the possibilities that you can get from being involved with sports and, 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 and more over than that, the kind of uh, qualities that you have as a sportsman. You don't even have to be world class, but you know, you, you, you're diligent about what you do, you're willing to take the time, you understand the rules of the game, uh, you're willing to put in work and, 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 and treat your your, your your fellow teammates and competitors with respect and dignity. These are uh, qualities that, that we try to uh, make sure that these athletes understand that they are learning something and they have these experiences that can be very, very positive going forward in life. So we're not interested in whether you, you, you make the second team of a professional soccer team. We want you to have life skills.
1: Dr. Moses, has given this 30 years since I saw you run. Even if you didn't see me, though, I think you're in my little autograph book here, somewhere in this great panoply of names from athletics. Is that stood the test of 30 years when I've lost everything else. So I was wondering you know, if, you, if you were to take me running in London. I hope you'll take up my challenge. And I think you know, I think you you might just about uh, keep, keep up. But what are your tips for improvement for those of us who have a lot of our listeners who will be very amateur athletes, still kind of daydreaming of gold, and if not gold, but just at least of getting a good deal better. Give us your magic nostrum if you could.
0: I think a lot of it is not just the physical part, but I think it's um, mentally how you position yourself in life and what kind of person you're gonna be. I think in a lot of cases, you're not gonna be a much more better athlete than the type of person that you are. And I think there's a lot of emotional intelligence that comes from doing sports. There's a lot of just straight academic intelligence that you can learn, you understand how to treat people. But I think it's really important to, to, to use sports as a tool. You have to put into it, you have to be serious about it. And it's about personal development. So it has nothing to do with how fast you are or to what level you go. Those are, are life skills that uh, can go a long, long way.
1: You still run every day?
0: I work out several days a week. I go to a local university and jog and do my exercises. I'm pretty much the same weight and the same size I was 30 years ago, so I haven't put on any extra weight. Just a little bit of hair during the (laughs) lockdown. There's no need to shave. There's nowhere to go. So, Uh, but Mm. other than that, I I haven't um, physically changed much at all. Still wear the same suits I wore 20 years ago, which most men can't say that. (laughs)
1: Dr. Edward Moses, thank you very much for joining us.
0: And Thank you very much.
1: And we'd love to know what you think. Will we ever really see the end of doping? Should athletes be allowed to protest? And how can there be a level playing field when it comes to intersex and trans women? And who should compete with whom? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more of our winning journalism, you can subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. For your best introductory offer, it's strictly gold. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.